Welcome to Black Diplomats, a foreign policy podcast about safety and security. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. Today, I had a really great and long talk with Pam Keith. Y'all, we had such a great conversation that we're going to break it up into two parts. So for today, in part one, we're discussing our take on the impeachment hearings against Donald Trump and extremism in the military. Today, our guest is Pam Keith, who ran for Congress out of Florida's 18th District. She's also a veteran of the U.S. Navy, where she served as a judge's advocate. She was the first African-American woman to run a qualified campaign for U.S. Senate in Florida history. She's the daughter of a U.S. diplomat and grew up living in many countries around the world. Pam was born in Turkey and lived in Morocco, Syria, Brazil, and several U.S. cities before going to college and graduating school at UC Davis and then law school at Boston College. And she has more than 20 years of legal experience, which will help us dig into these impeachment proceedings in which Democrats are trying to convince their GOP colleagues that Donald Trump should be convicted of inciting an insurrection. How you doing? I'm doing great, Terrell. Thank you so much for having me. I just want to do a mental health check with you because what we're experiencing is trauma. White supremacy is trauma. And we we just have to recognize the fact that hordes of rioters took to Washington to take over the government and Republicans don't give a fuck. All right. Just just got to say it like that. Um, We'll get into the news of all that and we'll get your take about the impeachment proceedings and everything. But I want to ask you how you are doing, how you are handling all this. That's a really good question. And just like everybody else, Terrell, you know, I have my moments. There are times when I feel optimistic, times when I'm angry that I could put a, you know, shake a stick at, times when I despair for it all and I'm fearful. But I am always guided by the spirit of my ancestors. So every time I start to get low or feel frustrated or feel like it's hopeless, I just remember on whose shoulders I stand. You know, if my grandmother could put up with the indignities that she had to deal with, if, if Harriet and Rosa and all of them had to put up with what they had to deal with, or surely could be optimistic in the circumstances she was running in. And I really just don't have an excuse to let myself get too down in the mouth. I mean, the reality is we have so, so much more to work with. We have so much, we've come so far, but my attitude is this, it's war. I'm a war, I have a warrior's mentality, right? In war, things don't always go your way. If you, if you believe that you are at war for something that you truly believe in, then you are in a, you are in a battle mindset, you know, and yeah, there's battle fatigue, but you just, you know, you get your little R&R and you regroup and you get back in the fight, period, end of story. So that's kind of how I'm hardwired. You know, I'm happy that you're feeling, uh, you know, you haven't been discouraged by it. I haven't either. But for me, I'm just like, God damn, you know, I the, the, here's the main takeaway for me is that we have one major political party that is a white supremacist party and they are a legitimate political entity and they control much of how we are governed. And 
it just makes me think about how precious and vulnerable we all are. I'll just give you an example. The fact that I could just say fuck it and just go to Ukraine and chill out in a cabin. Now, this is honestly tethered to a job. So I have a little book deal. I got a satchel, but I ain't got a bag. You know what I'm saying? And so this little cabin that I got, I can get it with my little satchel money. So, right. but, but I say all that because I have some degree of emotional getaway that I can exercise. I have a small apartment in Brooklyn that I could still pay for. Again, I have a job. It's a good job. But I think about the people who in this pandemic have not had any type of relief at all. And it just makes me think about why I have what I have. And I think about being black in this country. And it makes me a bit more angry at people who feel like, oh, I got here by my bootstraps, especially black people who, who, who parrot that crap because yeah, I feel like I work hard and I do all those things, but because white supremacy is so active in this country and because I'm a black man, I am one white person or one white cop away from him or her saying I felt threatened. Yes. And I'm gone. Right. And so I think about the ways that I'm able to get away and people say, oh, Terrell, I love how you're traveling and you're doing this and you're doing that. And every once in a while, there's this conversation about hard work. Yes, of course, I, I'm working hard right now, but I, I feel like because I'm black in this country, I, I'm lucky. Yeah. And it's not to disrespect my work ethic. It's because it's true. <laughs> there's, a, there's a component of luck in anybody's success, including the success of people who consider themselves pulled up by their bootstraps, right? And there's a there's an element of divine providence in any kind of, you know, I mean, we're all lucky just to be alive, consider how many of our brethren are in the ground today from COVID or whatever. So look, I, I look at it this way. I, I say to myself, look, um, there's a lot of things in my life that I cannot control. There's some things in my life that I can't, right? So I focus on the things that I can control. And I don't give myself any damn excuses to step back from the fight. Because if not me, then whom? And while it is true that we are being confronted with an entire political party that is about white supremacy, it's also true that the whole world now knows it, not just us, because we've been dealing with a white supremacist party for a very, very long time, since eternity, basically. And so this is the first season in my lifetime where the whole world sees it and the all bunch of white people see it and a whole bunch of other folks see it. And so I feel relieved that I don't have to use really nuanced, um, sophisticated, um, shaded words to try to explain policies that I know in my gut are white supremacists, um, to try to get, get more, to explain why I'm against them. Now I can just say, well, they're just basically based white supremacists and everybody be like, mm-hmm, yep, right? And so to me, <laughs> I feel relief in this time and I feel great optimism in this time because young people are coming up in a different reality. The truth of the matter is all black people knew that there are white people out there that are a threat to them. We've always known that. It is part of the reason why our housing is so segregated. Part of it obviously is the governor, governmental intentions of corralling black people because it's easier to decide who not to help when they're all in one place. But a part of it was the mutual assistance in having each other's backs. 
that sense that you know your neighbor is not out to get you and is not out to undermine you and harm you. And that is part of what gives us comfort on Sundays. When we go to church, it's the one place where we lay down our hair because we know everybody around us is for us and with us and positive with us. And that's the one place where we can feel like, you know, at ease. But to my way of thinking, we've all, I mean, we've always known, we've always known that, you know, Jason over here or Kevin over there or Karen on this side has got their, you know, has a knife sharpened for our back. But now we get the advantage of a lexicon, a frame of reference, a circumstance where we could talk to other white people that would be like, yeah, that's racist. And, and it's, to me, that's, that's huge movement. I think we've seen sea change movement on race issues in our country in less than a year. And to me, that's an amazing opportunity. And while there are there is backlash, especially in the older generations who fear change, young people, they get it. You have to, you have to beg them to get it, they get it. So I'm optimistic, I, I feel positive and optimistic. Do I think it's gonna be painless? Hell no. But that makes sense. You know, like our people have been in dire straits for so long. Right, like it's not like they're worse now than they were a year ago or two years ago or five or 15 or 25 or 50. Like they're where they were only this time, we got white people who are pissed off about it. That's the way I see yeah. <laughs> it. It's, it's really, you know, I'll tell you another thing too. Being in Ukraine, people ask me about what's going on in America and and just imagine having this conversation in Russian, right? So I'll give you this scene. So I was in, it, it, we were here and around this area, there are, there's a, there's forests. There's, you know, it's a, we're surrounded by forests. And in the summer, I'd go with the couple that owns this property, uh, hiking in the mountains and uh, picking berries and mushrooms. So Volva, the husband, he asked me about Charlottesville. And mind you, before I get into that, and for the listeners, and I'm sure you know about this, Pam, but roughly about a third of this country is occupied by Russian troops, right? And, and that uh, the Kremlin annexed Crimea, right? And so they have that going on. And so here locally, the people who have occupied that territory are considered terrorists. So that's important context for what I'm going to say about this Charlottesville conversation that I had with Vova. So mind you, we're just, I'm just pick, giving you the scene. So imagine it being an 80 degree day, 85 degree day, and just lush greenery everywhere. And you just see miles and miles of blueberries. And we're just picking them and eating them, picking them and eating them and talking and I'm still learning the language. And so I'm picking up words as I go along. So, so Volva says, Terrell, uh, what, what happened with Charlottesville? I'm surprised that he asked about it because I mean, this is in the middle of nowhere. You would think you would be at some cafe in Kiev, the capital, having this kind of highbrow conversation, whatever, but nowhere in the sticks of the Carpathian mountains near the border of Hungary and Slovakia and Romania having this conversation. And so 
I told him about it. I said, yeah, there are a bunch of um, white supremacists. You know, I, I gave him the whole story about the, you know, the rioting that took place and the woman who, who sacrificed her life. You know, the, the white woman who sacrificed, and I can't remember her name, forgive me. Heather Heyer. Heather Heyer, yes, Heather. thank you, who sacrificed her life, you know, for, for, for black lives. And, and to me, like, who personifies this whole conversation about patriotism, she's it, okay? Yep. That's who that's who a patriot is, right? In my mind. So he said, Terrell, I don't understand this. I thought America was a lot more advanced and far ahead. I said, well, no. And what's interesting is that I'm often the first black person that a Ukrainian gets to talk to in any depth. And I said, well, no, these people are people who are insurrectionists. And we didn't know what was going to happen January 6th, which leads up to the impeachment, which we're going to get into. But he basically cut me off and said, well, these people are terrorists then, right? I said, yes, yes. <laughs> you got it, Volva. Yes, yes. It, it, it was just, and he brought it up because he said, yeah, the, these, the, the people who are trying to take over our country, they're terrorists. And so he drew that link. And so when you talk about white people finally getting it, I see that not only in America, but I see that abroad. There are people who are curious about what's happening yep. And another thing about these people here too, which is another conversation, they're Russians, they're Slavs. And that's, that carries a whole different meaning in Europe. And being somebody who's traveled like yourself, you know this, um, you know, it's different difference between being a Ukrainian or a Russian or a Pole versus a, a French, a French person or an Ang, you know, somebody from, from England. But, but anyway, I, I, I have that optimism too, because that you share because around the world, people are willing to have these conversations. So I, I share that, but I, I want to get into this doggone impeachment. And <laughs> I, I just, listen, I watched it from the first day and I have to tell you that the way in which those house managers laid out that video, it was riveting in a sense that you were moved by it, but all the evidence was right there before you. And it was literally people's like these rioters own words, Trump's own yep. words. And I thought that this is devastating. But at the same time, you had all these GOP <clears throat> senators who just didn't give a damn. And they basically served as jurors. And, and I, I want to look at uh, something from... Um, PBS News Hour, and they talked about some of their takeaways. And I want to ask you about this because you're for our episode, our resident lawyer. So, <laughs> you know, and our and our litigator. So they talked about several things, right? They were like, um, "What does it mean to fight?" This is one of their points. And so, right. and and in this January 6th speech, Trump used the word "fight" or a version of it 20 times. And Democrats, uh, to Democrats, Trump's use of the word "fight" was a purposeful incitement to violence. And his supporters uh, interpreted literally when they stormed the Capitol. But Trump's defense team noted that in his speech, Trump told supporters to protest peacefully. Um, a, a clear sign they argued that he did not want them to use violence. I think that's BS, but you're going to talk about that. And so the so the politics of it all, um, the defense is basically saying that they just, you know, Democrats don't want Trump to run again. And then, you know, the the senators, um, Parsing questions, um, preview of the final vote. So that's another point they make. They said that uh, the partisan nature of the questions senators asked after defense rested offered a clear 
preview of where they stand heading into the final vote. And so basically the conversations are, you know, the Republicans are going out of their way not to acquit this guy, you know? So, and then finally, um, this is according to the Wall Street Journal. The headline is Mitch McConnell will vote to acquit Trump in impeachment trial aides say. So as you were watching the trial over the four days, what were your impressions and, you know, what are some things that we ought to be paying attention to? Well, I mean, I, I, I echo your sentiment. I think the House managers did a masterful job of making the case, right? But they were not actually making the case to the Republicans in the Senate. They were making the case to the American people because they were laying, as far as I'm concerned, the groundwork to justify the criminal uh, proceedings against Trump and others. Um, what they wanted to do was to, to put on display the craven nature and bad faith of the GOP senators who ostensibly took a, an oath to do impartial justice, right? And so they showed everybody chapter verse footnotes and references for everything of what happened here. And, and, you know, they just demonstrated the obtuseness of the folks who were going to acquit Donald Trump. So him getting acquitted by the Senate doesn't really mean anything. It indicts the senators. It doesn't really acquit him of anything in the minds of the American people. And whether or not he runs in the future is really academic. As far as I'm concerned, I think he's going to be in jail. And, and quite frankly, you know, uh, that there's a bigger issue here and that, you know, I think the bigger issue is America's beginning to understand that impeachment itself is a process that does not work in our times. Mm. Impeachment was a process that came about during a time when shame was incredibly effective as a form of constraint because you know, this, you know, the time that the founding fathers wrote the constitution, you know, a man's honor and his reputation was of such high paramount importance to him that they would duel over any insult to their character, right? Like, and so they believed that all men of good character would never contemplate, right? Allowing a person of bad character amongst them because they'd be tainted by it, right? They would never countenance, you know, somebody uh, helping England in that process, you know, when, you know they, they, they would consider that the greatest betrayal and blah, 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 you know, and so on and so forth. So I think we need to impeach impeachment, you know, because the concept that a person whose power is derived from from the head of their political party is going to kick out that head of their political party is absurd. Ab initio, at the beginning, it's an absurd concept. And it is particularly absurd in a circumstance where Donald Trump has this cult of personality such that he has absolute control over the political base. So it's self-immolating to do anything that Donald Trump doesn't like. And he's proven that over and over again. And he has proven his ability not only to, to kneecap somebody's political ambitions, but also to threaten their family and make their life a hot misery. And so if you are naturally disinclined to do what lives want, because that has been the posture that you've taken on for the last four years, then what's in it for you? What's in it for you to hold Donald Trump accountable and say, I convict him? 
Well, yeah, you might be right with history and your conscience might be clear, but your life now sucks and your political future is now done. And so to say that we think we're going to have this cadre of people who are selfless, self-reflective enough to not want to live with the shame is ridiculous. They've never demonstrated that kind of self-awareness or that kind of selflessness. So I moderated my expectations from get-go, right? Impeachment is the wrong process and we need to get rid of it because it cannot work in the kind of partisan world that we live in. So what we need to have is a different mechanism to deal with government corruption. And my view is that what we need is to have an entity that looks at corrupt behavior, compares it to ethical governing standards, makes a recommendation as to whether the corruption is sufficient to be removed from office, and then places that in a neutral's hands with, with prosecutors and defenders who are not partisan, partisans of the party that the person belongs to. That's how you get to the root of corruption and governance. But asking people to take the source of their own power out is ridiculous. They're not gonna do it. So yeah, they're being obtuse and ridiculous and they're, you know, well, you know, he, you know the word fight means fight. And they said fight, they said fight, we say fight and you know, like it's same, you know? And they know well, right? Like it's, but it's always that. It's always this bottomless bad faith of their arguments because they know damn well Democrats are pacifists. When we say fight, what we mean is protest. What we mean is register people to vote. What we mean is use social media and gather and organize. We don't show up at protests with black jackets, helmets, and combat gear. We don't do IEDs and AR-15s. That's not our side. That is not, and so so they can't point to a single Democratic politician or 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 influencer that encouraged people to engage in violence. And also, let us not forget that what he said on that day is connected to what he said the day before, and the day before that, and the day before that. So if Osama bin Laden on the day of 9/11 said, "Today we march forward and take the truth to the infidel." his listeners knew what that meant given that he and them had been planning this attack for three years right so you don't look at what osama bin laden said on 9 11 to determine whether he incited 9 11. you look at everything he did in that context and say everything about 9 11 was his masterminding his he gave them the reason to do it. He gave them the plan to do it. He gave them the motivation to do it. He organized the team. He ensured that the money got there and was supported and the infrastructure was around it. He was the one who came up with it all. And so when he said, let's go, he could have said no more words than let's go on 9-11. And that would have been sufficient incitement, period. Because he said, let's go. The words let's go are not necessarily incitement in, of, of themselves. Right? right, but in the totality of the plan, that's incitement. And the same is true here. Donald Trump gave this mob the reason to be there, told them what day they needed to be there, told them what they needed to do, gave the entire idea that Congress could be bullied into putting him back into 
to the presidency. He dispatched all these people to make sure that the money got there. He told people to get busloads of people up. He talked to the Proud Boys directly, if you remember. Enrico Tario was invited right into the right. White House to talk directly with it in a tete-a-tete -tete with Donald Trump. So don't tell me that he didn't give the whole, he, it's not kid and caboodle him. Of course it is. We're not all bubble the clown today. You know what I think though? But yeah, yeah, but yeah. our politics right now is about plausible deniability. And I'm sorry, but I'm just over I, I feel you. But another thing that annoys me is people talking about the Constitution. That Constitution is old and antiquated as hell. You know, I, I don't know what it is about people who insist on saying this is literally what the Constitution says. And mind you, it's hard for me to really respect a document that wasn't meant for my existence. Okay? I do understand that. I do. But I'm a lawyer, right? Yeah. So there is there is both terrible injustice and incredible genius in that document, right? And so I am not an originalist. I am not a person who believes that the only way we should proceed is in the in, in the exact framework that you know land owning white men put together in a document you know two hundred seven years ago. Um, however, there is something in there. What I find particularly magical about the Constitution is the separation of powers, the checks and balances, right? The respect for for freedom, the balance of individual freedoms against governmental responsibilities and rights, and the way that it regulates the interplay between the states and the federal government. Those things are actually really goddamn smart. <laughs> like they're really, really smart. And but for those things, Donald Trump would be eternal president of the United States. Right. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we would have a dictatorship. Absolutely. So, I, I, yeah, I, I, def I definitely believe that there is brilliance in it. And I think I would rephrase by saying that there's this extreme resistance to changing it because basically, and you already talked about it, Pam, it basic, but essentially, if you want, if you rework the Constitution to modernize it, then you're taking away white people. You're taking away the the power of white supremacy, or you, you're chipping. You're, you're taking it away. You're chipping away at it exactly. So so there is a natural antipathy to um to you know uh, constitutional amendments because the people who were most interested in amending the constitution were southern white people, right? So they were. There was an actual plan, and I think it was. Don't quote me, but I, I think it was put out by the Heritage Foundation, but it could have been some other right wing think tank about getting enough state legislatures in Republican hands to have a constitutional convention to change the constitution, and they needed thirty six states, and they got damn close. They got like thirty three. Um, and now it's kind of going back the other way because they lost Virginia and then they've lost, you know, a couple others. And so I think that they're, you know, but their hope was to try to enshrine white supremacy through a constitutional convention. The problem with changing the Jerry, you know, tinkering with the constitution is that it is such an incredible heavy haul to get all of Congress to agree to a constitutional amendment and then to get it ratified by all of these states and so on and so forth. And that's why the ERA has you know, been languishing for as long as it has. Um, people just don't like tinkering with the constitution. There's a sort of visceral dislike of that. Personally, I think it definitely needs to be revised. I think the 25th amendment is ridiculous. 
um, because because again, it counts on people who derive their power from the president to kick out a president which naturally emulates their own power. So they're not gonna do it. If we have a, a, a mental capacity problem with, our, with the president of the United States, that ought to be determined by medical professionals and a panel of experts who do an examination and determine if there's a mental health issue and that this is done not in, con not in aligned along partisan lines. We need to modernize the Constitution to take into consideration the realities of America's partisan divide. And, and if we don't do that, uh, you know, we're going to be in trouble. I want to ask you if you feel that it was the other way around and a Democratic president behaved that way and Democrats had the deciding power to convict, do you believe that Democrats would do it? I know this is kind of like yes, what is, you do. know. This is. Do you know why I do? Do you know why I do? Because of what we did to Al Franken. Oh, let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about that. Yeah, I, th I think you know it's it's an uncomfortable kind of thing, but I've heard a lot of people say that. But go ahead. I think I think the reality is that Democrats, by nature, don't like being hypocritical. We don't like being hypocritical, and um, we feel compelled as, by nature to protect victims, to protect those who have been harmed. And, and, and so we, in, an, in that moment, that with this Me Too mo moment, you know, you know, tip of the hat to the, to the Republican operatives that did this to Al Franken, right? Because they got us to use our, our righteousness and our, and our, and our um, you know, believe victims attitude to use it against one of our own. But we, in fact, as, much, as painful as it was, we proved that we were willing to use it against our own. And that has been consistent, right? Like when Jeffrey Epstein came, thing came down, every Democrat I know said the same thing. Look, if Bill Clinton has caught up, he going down. If it's so-and-so that's caught up, they going down. We got no, we got zero tolerance for this. I think what a lot of people don't seem to really factor into our politics is how much of our politics is actually driven by personality type. You know, as a political myself, as a candidate myself, I sometimes help try to help people understand that it is a, a, a the personality type that rails against authority and, and is really self-reflective and sort of about freedom and justice and equality um, is the personality type that gravitates to the left and the personality type that enshrines power and, and top-down authoritarian structure is the personality type that gravitates to the right. I noticed that in my own reporting of people. That's that's absolutely true. I want to I want to go you know kind of uh, add on to what you're saying is that I'll tell you most people who are running for office, the vast majority of them, as far as trying to find things to write about them, they're boring, okay? Um, and what do I mean by boring? And obviously it's not you because you're on my podcast, but I'm talking <laughs> about people, you know, what, what, what I mean is that most people who run for office and they're successful, it's usually some personality trait that taps into people's feeling into their inner core. Those are the ones that are successful and they're the ones that are easier to write about. And when I travel the country, whether it be going to cover Stacey Abrams in 2018 or in 2020 covering how various house races or covering the presidency, uh, I cover out of the 
I guess, close more than 20 people who ran for president. I covered about half of them. Many of them were pretty fucking dull. Um, <laughs> you know, I love Kamala was, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris. Now, she was interesting. And, you know, I liked Julian. And there are a number of other folks who I really enjoyed being around. But the rest, a lot of these folks, they're just boring and white and pale and male. And the ones who are able to catch attention, even if it's a little cult following, there is something about their personality that gravitates towards people because most folks don't have their minds geared towards particular policies. And right. when I enter, when, when I, for example, with Bloomberg, who ran because I think he was kind of rich bored, but he, one thing that he was really, one thing that people didn't know about was his expansion of stop and frisk. Okay. And I'll never forget when I was in South Carolina, they had a press oppressor with his, um, with, with his, um, like the people who were his uh, surrogates and they were mostly black mayors, interestingly enough, which is another kind of odd thing. Um, but what I found really strange was that they just want, they, they most, we started asking about stop and frisk. And I think for a lot of people who are in South Carolina, now mind you, he did not register to be on the ballot in South Carolina. He was going for Super Tuesday. But the point is that people are saying, oh, I like that Bloomberg guy because he's a businessman. I'm like, do you know about this? Do you know about that? I'm not trying to change your mind, but do you know these things? People are like, no, no, no. But when you do that with every single candidate, I don't care if you like them or not, I could tell you roughly about a good 60% of people did not really understand their policies. At minimum 60%, and I'm being generous with the 60%. But, and, and, but when you talk, but, but they all can tell you about how that candidate made them feel. Absolutely, absolutely. All of them, in intricate detail. In intricate detail, and that is, that is my political brand and style. Like I, the way that I proceed in politics is I do give them substance, but I am both a, you know, a, a policy person and a motivational speaker, right? So I use a motivational speaking style and intention when I go into a room, which is why I never use notes. I don't use bullet points. I don't have a stump speech because I'm not in there to tell them about me. I'm in there to tell them about them, right? Because really people want to hear that you connect to their worldview, their issues, their concerns, their, their, their problems. And so what I do when I go into a room is say, hey, here's a little bit about me, but here's why I'm here for you. Let me tell you about what I know, what you're going through. And here's my solution to that. And it, so you give them both emotional and intellectual satisfaction. And when they walk out of that room, they love you. They don't give a damn what you said. They couldn't even repeat <laughs> Right. <laughs> and yes. that's perfectly okay. To me, yeah. that's perfectly okay. Because in our current politics, you know I'm on the left, you know I'm a progressive, that's good enough to get you in the general ballpark of my policies, right? But now I've told you that I am full of empathy, I'm full of creativity, I'm tenacious. You can trust that I'm a woman of my word. You can trust that I get pissed off when things go bad for you 
and that I have the courage to go up against anybody, including folks in my own party who are screwing you over. People want to feel mm-hmm. like their leaders are taking care of them. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And so that's what I convey to people. Trust me to take care of you because God made me the person you want in the cage. Hire me to be your hired gun because I'm good at it. After candidates deliver their speeches, I always hang around for an hour or so, if not more, just talking to people, ask them, what did you take away from this? And it always goes back to, I feel like this person has a heart. I feel like this person cares. I've just, I trust this person and it doesn't matter how much a person knows or how sophisticated they are in articulating a point. It always comes back to, I felt this way. I felt that way. I've had plenty of people say, well, this person is a little stuck up. Or I think that this person is angry. It's, it's always personality types. And I think there's a, a, re, a, a reason behind that. And that is, we can never take for granted, Pam, that the two of us are, this is our work. We do it differently, but we're all in the same arena. My full-time job is to study policy, is to talk to people who are running for office. In my job as a journalist, it gives me the license to ask a wide range of questions and it gives me access to people who a lot of voters would never have access to. So of course, I'm going to know the ins and outs about a particular person's position on the economy or foreign policy or the environment because my job is to do that. But the average person that's working a nine to five, that's not making $15 an hour, they're waking up at six o'clock in the morning. Let's say they have a family, they're getting their family ready. They're preparing breakfast for their children, making sure that they're sent off making sure that the babysitter arrives if they can afford one, you know, at one point, you know, and they're going off to work their hourly job and hopefully they can get some extra overtime and they're, they're not geared towards social media or they're not geared towards the news cycle in the ways that we are. They're not, they don't know the axis or political or the root or any of these other sources of information because it's not in their daily ecosystem like it is in ours. And so they're left with the fact that I know that I need to make more money. I know I don't have health care. I don't have all these things. And I want to, if I'm going to vote, because it's, first of all, whether it's Obama, whether it's Bill Clinton, whether it is George W. Bush, or whether it's Donald Trump, I don't feel like my quality of life is getting any better. Right. And so they're going to always feel that way. And that's the real truth. A lot of people don't want it. That's that's a, a conversation that a lot of folks in our area, in our space, don't want to have. It's a whole bunch of folks who don't, you know, who, who don't want to acknowledge the fact that, hey, even though Obama has created greater access to health care, there are a whole bunch of folks who don't know how to access it. Right. I think this is why it's so exciting to be in politics right now, because there, the division is not between really left and right. The division right now is between 
minor tinkering with our current system or serious systemic change. That's really the debate. I think what people find difficult about me is on the one hand, what is difficult to categorize about me is that um, obviously I am a, a creature of the system I, I, in so many ways, the naval officer and you know attorney and all of that. Um, but I'm also very subversive because I'm, I go out and explain what part of the system is causing this to happen and here's the solution to that part of the system, which is a systemic eye-opener. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We talk a lot about criminal justice reform and sentencing and unfairness in our justice and our courts, right? Right. So I put a proposal on the table. Let us create something I call a sentencing equity review process where a panel of experts from across the state, each state puts up you know, 150 people that are social workers, psychologists, judges, lawyers, former felons, former correctional officers, a whole panel of them. And every person who is in pretrial detention or in jail or, or sentenced can submit their sentencing and their demographics electronically to the panel and the, a computer will determine whether you are out of norm for that profile and that crime. And if, it, if the computer kicks it out and says, this is out of norm, then the panel will review it. And if they feel like you were harshly punished because of your race or your gender, your age or some other prohibited reason, they will have the power to reduce or eliminate your jail time completely. That is a process that takes sentencing out of, because currently every decision is left to judges and the ones who throw the book at black people can never be reined in for that, right? The, pe the prosecutors who choose to go after black people and let white people go, they never get called on the carpet for that because we don't have a mechanism to make that so. So my proposal is to create a mechanism that actually is real time impactful to stop unfair sentencing in its tracks. Now, that's a subversive suggestion because in a way it's creating an equity blanket over the power that is imbued in prosecutors and judges. People don't, there's some people who don't like that. I do want to ask you, because you are a veteran, I want to get into this. I, I have a lot of veterans on this show. Both my parents are vets. My mother served 23 years. All right for her. Yeah, she did 23 years. And she was deployed in the first Iraq war. She also went to Bosnia. She was, um, and she went to a few other places. She, she was in a number of combat situations. Um, and my father, was a medic and he served for four years. He did his four and he went out. Um, but one thing that really stood out in this insurrection was the fact that according to NPR, nearly 20% of the folks who have been charged, uh, have served or are currently serving in the U.S. military. As a vet yourself, what's your takeaway from that? I, I saw that come in because for the longest time, Fox News was just one of the things that you saw on, on military bases, right? Or in VA hospitals or whatever. 
But when Donald Trump became president by executive order, he kind of mandated that it always be on Fox News. And so if you were on a ship or if you were whatever, if they if they had satellite TV on the ship, because not all ships do, but but if they had it, it was almost always on Fox News. Not only that, but there was an intentional um, uh, effort, a coordinated and intentional effort to recruit um, and to infiltrate military and police uh, by white supremacists. Uh, they encouraged their members to become, to join, to enlist, um, and to proselytize within. Um, and there was a, a hands-off attitude from military and police leadership. Uh, it, was a, it was a question of morale. It was also a question of, uh, you know, the, the unions, police unions in particular, developed very, very strong white supremacist uh, leanings. And so, so at the end of the day, um, I could see this cancer growing. Also remember what I said a little bit earlier, There's a, there is a natural inclination to authoritarian structures. And part of what, what you know, there's, a, there's an article that came out, I think today or yesterday, about these, the fear of social change as being the driving factor, not economic insecurity, but social insecurity. Well, you know, what institutions drive white masculine power dynamics, police and military? Right, and so that's where you go to feel strong. And of course, those are the institutions also that um, are elevating women and people of color. And and you know you were you know. And so that those institutions are the place where we you know we we give deference and we give authority of of the of the power to use violence. They're the only sanctioned violence users of society our military and police. And so if you are a person naturally inclined to, to violence and naturally inclined to masculine white supremacy, then those are the perfect institutions because now you are trained and sanctioned to use the violence against that which threatens you. And so what happened was the bleed over from that which you were processing mentally while you were on parlor and while you were on whatever, right? to now using the training that the American people, the taxpayers paid for to go in and use your training against that which you believe to be a threat. Even if it's not your chain of command that told you to do it, you went in the military to get this training to deal with this threat because that's who you are. We allow these people to join our military without checking who they are and what they're about. And when they displayed white supremacist thoughts and ideologies and things, we didn't check it. Back when I was in, there was no way you could fly a Obama flag or, or wear a Bill Clinton button on your uniform. No way. You couldn't attend a political event in uniform, period. So when I saw the video of the Trump flags and buttons on the, on the ship, when Trump went out to the ship, I lost my shit because that was completely in contravention to the regulations. But, but did the rules change, though? No, no, the enforcement changed. The rule did not change. So what happened was that the, the captain of the ship got called on the carpet and his senior leadership let him off. So what happened was all the norms and standards that we had about not politicizing the military got thrown out because Donald Trump put loyalists and senior leadership at DOD and as heads of all the, uh, of, of all the services. So their leadership, because it is a top-down structure in the military, the culture changes from the top down faster than in any other institution. Why? Why is that? Why? Because of the, because of the, the natural 
institutional deference to authority. You do defer to the person above you naturally, and it has to be that way. So if your boss is racist, your unit's going to be racist, period. Right. And, and so what happens is that the top down mood in the military changes faster than anywhere else, which is why it was also able to be integrated faster than anywhere else, because there were such draconian um, responses available to people who would not conform. Right. If you don't conform in the military, we have ways of punishing you immediately. Right. And so that is why it is easier to change a culture in the military than it is anywhere in, in, in society in general. Because if you don't, if you step out of line, we can smack you right away. Right. That's why. And so even though, I mean, that being the case doesn't mean it's overnight, but it does mean it's faster than anywhere else. And, and so that Trumpism, that co-opting of the military as a, as a visual aid for Trump's nationalism became ensconced in the military through the control of the partisans that he put in senior military leadership. This is why I had so many problems with John Kelly and, and, and Mattis and all these guys, because they watched Donald Trump politicize the military on their watch and said nothing. To me, they are as responsible for what happened on 1-6 as anybody else because they were specifically supposed to be the adults in the room with him. The problem is Donald Trump would not tolerate anybody in his orbit who is not a sycophant. The first thing Donald Trump, like any authoritarian, is going to do, if you meet him, the first thing he's going to do is ascertain the power dynamic between you. And if you feel confident or, or strong in yourself, if you're knowledgeable, you're an expert and you feel confident, the first thing he's going to do is attack the base of your own self-worth and your own self-knowledge. That is the first thing he's going to do. And if you push back in any way, if you hold your ground in any way, he will move you out of his orbit completely. He will not play with anybody he cannot control. You know, it, it's interesting. This is just so not necessarily on the topic, but I feel like you're describing a whole lot of terrible bosses in our working lives. <laughs> exactly. But that is a, that is a person that, that is a characteristic, right? It is a, that is a characteristic of a profoundly insecure person. A profoundly insecure person cannot tolerate secure people around them. So they will either make them feel insecure too, or they will move them out. Mm. You know, uh, yeah, I was thinking about this because I talk to vets of color all the time and they all tell me, they all tell me about that crazy white boy. Uh, there's all, and it starts off with that, that crazy or racist white boy story. That's what I call them. The crazy white boy story or the racist white boy story. Every single person has one. My mother has a whole bunch of them because she served for 23 years. She also talked about what it was like being out there with them in Iraq. And so from my understanding of talking to vets, it's a different situation. It depends on what space you are. It depends on, you know, which branch you're in. Like it all varies, right, on the type of white boy that you're dealing with. But my, my mother was in the army and she, like the way that she described the white boys and where she worked out, it was like, it was a frat boy culture because, and, and the example that she gave me was, she said they were in, a lot of times, you know, with the Iraq war, a lot of people think that, oh, you know, all the troops went into Iraq. And she was like, no, a lot of us are waiting in Kuwait. Absolutely. And I spent a lot of time in Kuwait. <laughs> You're waiting. And she said a lot of people think that, oh, we're out there 
shooting guns all day. She was like, a lot of it is just really boring. And even when you get to Iraq, the things that don't um, kill you may not be the bullets. It'll be something like the sandstorms, right? So, but anyway, <clears throat> what she was saying was that when you're in the monotony of that, a whole, like you're out there by yourself and there was not a lot of regulation about anything really going on, you know, per se, like the behavior. She was like, it was a frat boy culture. And people, yeah, and she said that people, she was like, the, you know, because and she told me I had to, I had permission to tell the story. So basically a whole lot of things um, happened to her in the military, including sexual assault. And she talked about the power dynamics with the white boys and how they would treat her as a black woman. You ain't number a little black female, whatever, whatever. And, you know, nobody's going to believe you. And they flat out told her that. And she said there was a white boy culture that actually, you know, that was so layered that protected sexual assault, particularly against black women, right? And, you know, and then she said it got into alcoholism, you know, and then she also discussed how the fact that since you're out there in the, in the desert all the time, you're drinking. You know, you're just drinking beer right. all day. Well, yeah, I mean, it's different for the Navy, right? It's different because, you know, there's no drinking on our ships. So if you're on the ship, you're not drinking, right? But I, I completely understand what your mom went through and, and the circumstances in which that happens. Understand that most of the folks that you're talking about are coming into the military at 18 years of age, directly from whatever podunk town they came from or whatever neighborhood or suburb they came from. And a lot of them joined the military because they really didn't have anything else. Now, I'm not saying that everybody was, you know, who joins the military is, is without options. I'm saying that there are plenty of people who are without options who choose the military. Um, and, so what they and like finds like and units right so you get assigned to a unit and you're gonna have all kinds of people in that unit and you're gonna naturally gravitate towards the people who are like you that you can relate to now there are all kinds of really great friendships that get developed in the military across race lines across gender lines across background lines that is one of the best places to meet people who are not like you and befriend people who are not like you but it is also a place where you can find people who are like you right? And who are thinking like you do. Um, and then, you know, for in military, there it's true that there are times when you are at an operational tempo that is breakneck. And especially on ships, because they are operating 24-7, if you have a job that involves taking care of the ship, you are breakneck work all the dang time. So when you do get a break, you are going to just go completely crazy and get drunk off your ass to break down, you know, to let yeah. off your steam. There are jobs, however, that have a whole lot of downtime. In the military and the Navy, we have uh, Marine carrying ships, right? People who are ship's company are busy. The Marines on the ship are not. They spend all their time cleaning their weapons, working out, eating, and hanging out. <laughs> so they have a lot of idle time until it's time for them to do their thing. When we pull up on shore, they get in their LL, you know, AABs, they're all cats, and they go in and they storm the beach and they do their thing, right? There's a time when they are busy. But when they're just traversing the ocean in our ships, they're not busy. They're kind of hanging out. Right. And so it should not surprise you that, that these little cliques form. They absolutely do. But it is a question of the leadership of the unit on how how they manage that. And that leadership is not entirely officer leadership. There's also senior enlisted leadership, which has a very significant impact on the culture of the unit. Right. And so it, it, it's a question of 
what what is allowed in that unit is almost entirely dependent on this on the personalities and priorities of the leadership of the unit if it's if, if it's if you've got good leadership that says we're not doing this shit, then trust and believe it will not be done thanks a lot for listening to part one of black diplomats interview with pam Keith. look out for part two of our conversation that's going to drop on wednesday Please support the podcast by going on your favorite platforms, including Spotify and iTunes, and giving us a five-star rating. And go on to Patreon, search for Black Diplomats Podcast, and donate what you can. Talk to you next week.